Well, as Libby mentioned, uh, we're continuing our series that we started almost last week, um, thinking how we share our faith with people who don't believe the same things that we believe. And we've been doing it for quite a few weeks in the morning, in the uh, morning services, and we thought just in the run-up to the summer break um, during June, we'd do the same in the evening. One of the great thinkers about mission in the church over the last 100 years uh, was a guy called Leslie Newbegin. And he wrote about post-modernity when no one had ever heard of post-modernity. He was a missionary in India for about 50 years. And he said this about the church. He said, the church is not an organization of spiritual giants. It is a group of broken men and women who can lead others to the cross. The church is not an organization of spiritual giants. It's a group of broken men and women who can lead others to the cross. The simple fact is that as Christians, we're called and expected to share our faith with other people, not because we're better, not because we're perfect, not because we're nice and good, but simply because we have received and experienced God's unconditional love and forgiveness. And having experienced that love and forgiveness, we want other people to experience that love and forgiveness as well. Another famous preacher from the 19th century, a guy called D.T. Niles, famously summed up evangelism as this. It's simply one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. In essence, that's what it comes down to. When we share our faith, we're telling other people what we have found. One beggar telling another beggar simply where they can find bread. But how do we do it, and how effective are we at sharing our faith? One of the paradoxes of the success of the Alpha Course over the last 25 years is that as people have done Alpha across the world now, and 29 million people around the world have done Alpha, the emphasis on personal evangelism has somehow decreased. Because when you talk to people, and I talk to church leaders, I'm the chair of Alpha Scotland, so I talk about Alpha a lot, and I love Alpha. I've done Alpha for 22 years. I've had more lasagna than you can even imagine. When you talk to Christians, though, or church leaders about evangelism, often their first response is, oh, no, no, it's okay, we do Alpha. We do Alpha. So we're an evangelistic church. We do evangelism. Why? Because we do Alpha. But you see, there's all the difference in the world between a church doing Alpha and each Christian taking responsibility for how they share their faith. Now, Alpha is a great thing. It's been relaunched, and uh, it's about to be uh, revamped um, with a new Alpha film series. And this autumn, we'll be using this relaunched Alpha film series with a global campaign uh, being fronted by Bear Grylls. Um, Those are the presenters uh, of the Alpha film series that's been filmed over the last two years. Uh, They've invested well over a million pounds. They've filmed it on, on location in Jerusalem, in Paris, in Chile, 
the production values are incredibly high. It's done really, really well. Um, Toby, uh, who's the guy in the denim shirt, he's one of the staff at HDB. You can tell that because he's wearing a denim shirt. Um, and Gemma, uh, Gemma is uh, a CBeebies presenter, therefore well qualified uh, to present an evangelistic course. Uh, she's a committed Christian, a professional broadcaster to help Toby out. And they're really good in the way that they present it. And it's been done really, really well. And our aim as Alpha Scotland is to see a million people invited to Alpha over the course of the next year. Now, you hear a number like that, and around the world, the target for Alpha is to invite a billion people around the world to Alpha in the next year. Now, you look at a billion, or you look at a million, and you think, how's that going to happen? Well, of course, the only way that's going to happen is by a million people a million Christians in Scotland having conversations, inviting their friends, their neighbours, their work colleagues to come on Alpha. So if there are 200 people here this evening, that's how 200 invitations of that million will be done, by you inviting your friends, your neighbours, your work colleagues. I'll try and invite my friends, my neighbours, my work colleagues, not so sure, um, to come on Alpha. That's how it's going to happen. Through a million individual one-to-one conversations with your friends, your neighbours, and your work colleagues. Now, 85% of Christians in the UK agreed in a survey that was done last year that it was their responsibility to talk to somebody else about their Christian faith, about Jesus. And remarkably, 66% said that they had talked to somebody in the past month who didn't know Jesus about what they believed. But when the survey flipped and talked to people who weren't Christians, yes, a lot of people said, we know active Christians. We have had conversations with active Christians. But the results were that only 16% of the people who weren't Christians who had talked to a Christian in the previous three months about Jesus, only 16% felt sad that they didn't share the Christian's faith. And more alarmingly, 42% were quite relieved that they didn't share the Christian's faith. That's from a survey done this time last year. So how do we get past what can seem a negative stereotype when it comes to this idea of sharing our faith? Now, we may not all have the gift of evangelism. We're not all called to be evangelists. But we are all called to be witnesses. That's quite a different thing. A few years ago, I discovered the helpful idea, however, that in the New Testament, there are different styles, different types of people who share their faith. And this was liberating for me and for the people that I was um, leading at at the time in the church that I was working for. And depending on your personality type, one of these five types probably comes nearer to who you or I am. Not in a sort of Myers-Briggs way, but more simply based on who we are and what comes naturally to us. Now, what's called type one is a sort of confrontational type of person. 
This is the J. John, the Billy Graham, the Miriam Swaffield type of evangelist. This is what we think of when we hear the word evangelist. This is somebody on a platform. This is somebody on a stage. This is somebody preaching at you. Somebody who will tell you like it is and they're going to invite you to know Christ. And they make lots of gestures like this and they're quite scary. (laughs) And somehow that is the stereotype that we've got of an evangelist. So someone like J. John, I love J. John, he gave me my first break in doing evangelistic talks. And he came to me and said, Dave, I'll do the evening talks, you can do the lunchtime, because that's how he speaks. And he's a, he's a brilliant communicator, really fantastic evangelist. But you can hear someone like J. John, or you can hear someone like Billy Graham, or you can see someone like Miriam Swaffield, and you think, well, I'm not that type of person. The first university mission that I ever did um, at Leicester University, I did the first night's talk, and I turned to Andy, the student who was chairing the the, the mission committee for the CU, and I said, any tips for night two? And he said, I've just got one comment, Dave. And I said, what's that? He said, tomorrow night, can we have more of Dave and less of J. John? Because I'd worked with Jason on lots of missions. I'd actually worked the previous year on a mission at Leicester University with Jason. So being in the same context, being in the same space, working with some of the same people, doing my first student mission, I thought you had to speak like Jason. And if you didn't speak like Jason, you weren't being a proper evangelist. Because <laughs> that's how he talks. Now, I'm not a Greek Cypriot, you may have noticed. (laughs) I'm not a Cockney. I'm not as small as J. John. Few people are. I can't be J. John. I can only be Dave Richards. And Andy was dead on in saying, less of J. John, more of Dave. You are called to be the person that you are, not somebody else. Your personality type may not be the upfront evangelist, the confrontational type, where often we've thought of, equated that with being an evangelist. You may be more like type two. Type two is a more personal and storytelling approach. It's like the person um, in John chapter 9 who simply says the guy was born blind and is, is healed by Jesus. And the people come to him and say, look, what do you think about Jesus? Uh, what's been going on? And the man simply says, one thing I know. Once I was blind and now I can see. And he simply tells his story. The best two examples of this around in the church in the UK are two guys called Shane Taylor, that's his picture on the screen, or Darren Tunnicliffe. These are people who've got amazing stories of how they came to faith. Shane Taylor was known as the most dangerous criminal in Britain. He came to know Christ in prison. Darren Tunnicliffe, again, was in prison when he became a Christian. Now, you may not be a criminal. One or two of you look a bit dodgy, but you're probably not a criminal. You think, may think that your story isn't as exciting as Darren Tunnicliffe or Shane Taylor, but your story is your story. This morning we heard from, from Donna just how God has worked in her life and brought her to faith over the last three or four months. Very powerful. Why was it powerful? Because it was personal. It was what God has 
begun to mean to Donna. Your story is your story. The way in which you share your faith may well be how Jesus has worked in your life and what Jesus means to you. It's actually what is right at the heart of Bear Grylls' own Christian faith. Bear Grylls, who's going to be um, being the front, the face, the front of the Alpha campaign from this September, has a very compelling story of how he's come to faith. And this approach of type three, that's Bear Grylls behind the hands, type three, well, that approach is very much at the heart of the Alpha course. Type three we'll look at in more depth next week. Because type 3 is based on Matthew in Luke chapter 5, who holds a party for people and invites them to come and meet Jesus. Or it's the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who goes back to the village that she's been excluded from and ostracized because she's pinched other people's husbands, and she simply says to them, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Now what she said actually wasn't true, But that's how it felt to her. And type three is that simple invitation. Come and meet Jesus. It involves hospitality. As I say, it's right at the heart of the Alpha course and the Alpha methodology. And we'll look in more depth next week uh, as we go through um, Matthew chapter 5. It involves conversations. It involves relationships. It involves friendship. That's type three. Type 4 is slightly different. Type 4 is more about simple acts of service. So the best example is Mother Teresa, who simply served people. She didn't do a lot of preaching. She didn't do a lot of sharing a story or testimony. She simply served people. That was what she became famous for. One of the things that's happening in in the Middle East at the moment is, is that churches that are offering simple hospitality and care and compassion and generosity are being packed out with people from a Muslim background. The churches aren't preaching, but they're simply reaching out with care and service, a bit like we do through Soul Food on a Saturday. And these churches are being overwhelmed by numbers of people from a Muslim background who are asking that question that that Mike mentioned. Tell me more about this Jesus. Tell me more about this Jesus whom you worship, whom we revere and respect, but we recognize that you worship in a different way, and we recognize that he is the motivation behind what you are doing. Tell me about this Jesus. And it's not preaching. It's not verbal proclamation that's causing them to ask questions about Jesus. It's simple acts of service. So you might not be a big speaker. You might not have an amazing testimony, a story of how Jesus has worked in your life. But you may be somebody who can just through simple, sometimes unnoticed, random acts of kindness and service, bear testimony to what Jesus means to you. It might be being the first person to make coffee in your office. It might be being the person who does the washing up 
That's a big ask in our office. But people will notice when you serve, when you're the one that brings a cake in. People notice that type of thing. Maybe you're the person who picks up when someone's a bit down at work and you just encourage them or you bring them a simple gift. Maybe you send them a card. Maybe you send them a text or an email. Simple acts of service. In the New Testament, it's a woman called Tabitha or Dorcas in Acts chapter 9 who was described as always doing good and helping the poor. What an amazing epitaph. Always doing good and helping the poor. This type 4 personality is someone who's usually humble, people-centered, and patient. So type 1, the more upfront evangelist. Type 2, the person who can tell a very compelling story about how Jesus has worked in their life. Type 3, somebody who invites people to meet Jesus, is good at hospitality and conversations and friendship. Type four, somebody who simply serves people. And then type five, that we're going to look in a bit more depth this evening. Type five is somebody who's more thoughtful or intellectual, inquisitive and analytical. They're able to discuss their faith with intelligence and reason. Examples in the church in the West today might be someone like Lee Strobel, who is a, a journalist who wasn't a Christian and eventually became a Christian, written some great books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Creation, The Case for Faith, talking to people who are experts in their field about the case for the Christian faith. Someone like Dr. Alistair McGrath, who is a, an amazing theologian, but also a really good what's called an apologist, somebody who can give the reasons for why we believe what we believe. Alistair McGrath is an incredible introvert. He's a really, really shy man. Um, he was actually Kathy, my wife. Um, he was her equivalent of James Green uh, when she was a teenager. He was the curate in her church. And the youth group used to meet at Kathy's house her parents weren't Christians, um, but she decided that the youth group was going to meet at her house. And so every Sunday night after church, about 30 young people would descend on Kathy's house and her parents, who weren't Christians. Kathy was aware of this, even as a 17-year-old, that this wasn't the best idea, and used to try and persuade Alistair McGrath, who is now one of the world's foremost thinkers in the Christian faith, who is able to write academic books and books for the popular market on the same subject. It's quite a rare gift. Alistair was so shy that every single Sunday evening, Kathy had to persuade, force, cajole, frog march the Reverend Alistair McGrath into her lounge to say thank you to her parents. But Alistair McGrath would not say boo to a goose. A friend of mine, because Alistair McGrath later on became principal of a theological college, a sort of, you know, uh, where, where they train people to be vicars and do the jobs uh, that Rich and Libby and me and James do. And this person went for an interview, and Alistair McGrath, as the principal of that college, interviewed him. Alistair McGrath was so shy 
that he never turned round. He simply worked on his computer, and what Pete, my friend, all he saw was Alistair McGrath's back. And Alistair McGrath was so shy, he couldn't actually turn around and face Pete. And so he would work on his computer and just every now and again would look like that and just throw questions over his shoulder. Alistair McGrath, you would not think, is a natural evangelist. But he's one of these type five evangelists. It's all in his head. He can write, he can think. Another example would be Professor John Lennox, professor of mathematics at Oxford, who is able to debate with people like Richard Dawkins with a remarkable grace and generosity and actually help people see the futility of Richard Dawkins' arguments. If you um, Google Richard Dawkins and John Lennox and see the way in which they debate, John Lennox wipes the floor in a loving generous way with Richard Dawkins. Now, the best example in the New Testament of a type five evangelist, a thoughtful intellectual evangelist, is the Apostle Paul. He's very different, for example, to Peter. Peter is more type one, in your face, you're going to hell, sort of evangelist. Paul is, is very different to Peter. Paul has been schooled in Judaism. Paul was in the Sanhedrin. Paul was the, a Jew of the Jews. He was a, um, of the, just an amazing Hebrew scholar. He's a very different kettle of fish to Simon Peter because of their personalities. Paul is a thinker. Paul has been traveling in the reading that we heard tonight from the Acts of the Apostles that, that Chris read for us a few moments ago. He's been to a place called Amphipolis, to Apollonia, and then to Thessalonica. He's had to escape from Thessalonica as his preaching has caused unrest. And he waits for his colleagues, Silas and Timothy, in Athens. He goes to the capital of Greece. He's got some time to kill. And as he's waiting, he goes for a walk around. Athens at the time was one of the great cities in the ancient world. Incredible architecture. It was known as the Edinburgh of the South. <laughs> Apparently, Edinburgh is known as the Athens of the North because we've got a Parthenon that isn't finished either. <laughs> Athens had been the foremost city-state since the 5th century BC. It was proud, intellectual, and independent. It remained a free city even under Roman rule. It was famous for its tradition and history and for thinkers such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And while he's waiting for his friends to arrive, Paul goes for a look around. And what we're told in the Acts of the Apostles, in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 23, is that what Paul sees is not so much the magnificent architecture, it's not so much the incredible achievement of that city, but what he sees is a city and a people who were spiritually lost, who were worshipping the wrong things. The writer Pliny described Athens as having 25,000 idols in the city with another 30,000 idols in the Parthenon alone. It was the cultural capital of the world, but spiritually it was a ruin. Four quick principles. Firstly, verse 16, what Paul saw. What Paul saw was a city 
swamped with idols. The Greek word is katedolos. And the sense of the Greek word there is of the city being swamped, smothered under a forest of idols. Everywhere you, you went, there were images of Apollo or Jupiter or Venus or Mercury or Bacchus or Neptune or Diana. And in the Parthenon itself, there was an enormous, huge, gold and ivory statue of Athena, the goddess, whose gleaming spear point could apparently be seen 40 miles away. It was so big and so impressive, it could be seen 40 miles away, glinting in the sun. Idols of stone and brass and gold and silver and ivory and marble and leather were everywhere. So you see, what Paul saw wasn't the architecture. What he saw was where the city was spiritually. Secondly, what he felt, verse 16, we're told that he was greatly distressed. The word that's translated as distressed is Paul feeling pain and anger and jealousy and grief. The Greek word is parox unato. It has shades of irritation, stimulation, and a sort of churning inside. And what Paul is describing as Luke, who's the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, writes down what Paul is, is saying, how he felt walking around Athens, is that something churned deep inside him. It reminded me this week of that prayer of the founder of World Vision, a guy called Bob Pierce, who simply prayed this prayer 50, 60 years ago. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. The answer to that prayer for Bob Pierce was to begin World Vision. The answer to Paul's prayer was what happened next. It's a very dangerous prayer to pray. Lord, would you break my heart with the things that break your heart? When I look at Edinburgh, when I look at Scotland, would you break my heart with the things that break your heart about this city? Thirdly, what Paul did in response, verse 17. Paul responded as he only knew how to. He began to speak, we're told, in the synagogue to the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. He began initially with people who shared his worldview, who he could relate to. Once he talked to them in the synagogue, and they kicked him out, he then went into the marketplace and began to talk to passers-by. He then started to argue with two particular groups of people, those who were ruled by pleasure a group called the Epicureans, and those who were simply slaves to fate, people known as the Stoics. From there, he was taken to this place called the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens. It was a sort of marketplace of ideas. Do you get the irony that, that, that Chris picked up on when he was reading it? Because all the people in Athens and all the foreigners used to live there and love to swap ideas. It's a bit like the internet, place where people just love to swap ideas and every idea is as valid as the other. Well, there was this place called the Areopagus in Mars Hill, which is now on the worldwide interweb, um, 
That's where they used to swap ideas. And Paul is taken to this place, the Areopagus in Mars Hill, this sort of marketplace of ideas. And there's a sense of being, him being called before a council. And the people, that, the, the fathers of the city say, what is this strange teaching that you're bringing to us? You, you, you're talking about a foreign God. Because they've heard that, that Paul is preaching about two things. He's preaching about Jesus and he's preaching about the resurrection. And they think that he's talking about two new gods, Jesus and the resurrection. Interesting to note, that was Paul's emphasis. Jesus and the resurrection. And they say, explain to us what you are teaching. And we're told what he said in verses 22 to 31. And what I find fascinating is to see what Paul says, but most importantly, what Paul doesn't say. When Paul is talking in the synagogue to the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, he's using stuff that he's used before. He's using old talks. He's using references to the Old Testament because they were familiar with that. When the council of the Areopagus say, tell us what you believe, it's interesting in verses 22 to 31, Paul makes no reference to the Jewish scriptures because he knows that the people that he's speaking to don't know them. So there's no point referencing them. There's no point saying, well, you will know it says in Isaiah because they didn't know Isaiah. That's exactly the situation that we find ourselves in now in 21st century Scotland. 60% of Scots have never read the Bible. They've never read the Bible. So there's no point saying things like, you know what Jesus said in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Because they won't know it. There's no point saying, you know when Jesus tells that story about the parable of the lost son? They won't have heard it. So we have to communicate our faith in a way that people can understand. And we have to go to where they are in their thinking rather than assuming or presuming that they know what we know. What Paul does in this masterful speech is he starts exactly where the Athenians are. He's very gracious, he's very polite, but he doesn't mince his words. He says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, very polite, very gracious. But then he says, I have found an altar to an unknown God. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, the altar to the gods of the unknown was very common. There were all these idols everywhere, and every city, if not every street, had an altar to the unknown god. It was a sort of, well, we've, we've got an idol of everybody else, let's cover our bets and have one called unknown. That's what they were doing, just in case we'll have the unknown one. It was the get-out clause. Paul says, you've got an idol to an unknown God. I'm not proclaiming something new to you. I'm proclaiming to you this God that you don't know. 
And then he starts to talk about the God that he knows. The God who is the creator of the universe, verse 24. The God who is the sustainer of life, verse 25. The God who is the ruler of all nations, verse 26 and 27. The God who is the father of all human beings, verse 28. And the God who is the judge of the world, verses 30 and 31. And then again, he finishes with emphasizing the resurrection of Jesus. That's what distinguishes Jesus from all the other. You say that you believe in that God, you believe in that God, you believe in that God. I believe in Jesus, who was God become a human being. And God proved who he was by bringing him back from the dead. Beat that. It's interesting to see how they respond in verses 32 and 34. Some sneer. Some want to hear more, and some become believers. And that will often be the response that people have to the Christian faith. Some people will sneer. Some people will want to know more. And then some people will want to become Christians. Libby this morning reminded us of the need to be generous in the way in which we sow God's seed. How the, 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 the parable of the sower is one where the, the sower just throws it out. And Jesus tells a story about the seed landing on four different types of soil. The sower doesn't go in a line just like this. He just throws it out randomly. And some lands on good soil, some lands on the path, some lands on hard soil, some land another place where the weeds come and choke it. Our responsibility is not the type of soil that we're sowing into. Our responsibility is to sow the seed. So the question is, are we sowing the seed of God's kingdom? Some challenges. When we look at the city of Edinburgh, what do we see and what do we feel? Do we see, a bit like Athens, a city that is beautiful, and it is? But do we see a city also that in that, that beautiful phrase of, of Alexander McCall Smith, do we also see a city that breaks the heart over and over again. Because there is that thing in Edinburgh. It's a city of immense beauty, of immense richness, of incredible diversity and incredible prosperity in terms of culture and the arts. And we have all the festivals during the summer. And it's a beautiful place to live. And I've can't believe, if you like, that people said to us when we moved here 20 years ago, you'll find it incredibly hard to move away from Edinburgh. We went, nah, we've lived in Birmingham. It's easy. We can move. But it is a stunning place to live. You, you see a picture like that, a photograph like that, and you think about the one evening in the year when it looks like that. <laughs> when the ha hasn't come in. And it's a stunning place to live. But it also is a city of incredible variety and incredible poverty 
an incredible need. Do we see the city as God sees it? Do we see the people of Edinburgh as God sees them? Because I believe if we pray that prayer, let our hearts be broken by the things that break the heart of God, then we will look upon Edinburgh in a different way. We will not look at it with the tourist's eye. We will see it as God sees it. With a population of 95% who don't go near a church. With 60% of its population having never read the Bible. The generations growing up with no knowledge at all of who Jesus is, and at least 55, 60% of them actually not really believing that there was a historical person called Jesus of Nazareth. Do we see as God sees? Do we see a city swamped by idols, just in the same way as Athens was? They're different ones. They're idols of wealth and status and position, and prosperity. The idols of living in Morningside or Stockbridge. The idols of which school you go to, immediately putting you in a league table. The idols are all there. They look different to the ones in Athens. But we live in a city as swamped by idols as the people of Athens 2,000 years ago. Do we see what God sees? Do we feel what God feels? Have we allowed our hearts to be broken by the things that break the heart of God? And do we know what we believe, and can we share it in a way that starts where our friends are? Are we able to communicate what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about God, what we believe about his unconditional, amazing love for every single human being who has ever lived in a way that does not come across as preachy, but in a way that's humble and winsome and gracious, but deeply, deeply attractive. See, the thing about the person of Jesus is that he was and is deeply, deeply attractive. The church may repel people. Christians may repel people. But Jesus is deeply, deeply attractive. People 2,000 years ago knew that, and people today know that. When they see Jesus for who he really is, it's what's happening to thousands of people from an Islamic background in the Middle East. They see Jesus, and he's deeply attractive. Even with all the cultural difficulties and danger that it might mean for them in becoming a Christ follower, are we presenting the person of Jesus in a way that's deeply attractive? And are we prepared for some people to sneer? But are we prepared for some people to want to know more? And are we actually prepared to believe that some people will want to become Christians? I remember talking to a guy who actually was the guy who trained J. John in evangelism. 
when I was a student. And he said, Dave, the problem for most people, most Christians in the UK, when it comes to sharing their faith, is that they've never actually seen somebody become a Christian. You see, if you've never actually sat down with somebody and helped them to become a Christian, there's something deep within you that you don't really believe that it's possible. Yeah, it happened to you, but you're different. You think about that work colleague, you think about that neighbor, you think about that friend, and you think, well, it couldn't happen to them. The thing was, somebody thought that about you. At some point, a Christian thought about you, thought about me, and thought, Dave couldn't become a Christian. But then my mate Brian, and it had to be God with my mate Brian, my mate Brian thought, actually, Dave could become a Christian. And he shared what he believed with me. Do you actually believe that people can still become Christians? Some people, sometimes after a service, doesn't happen very often now, sometimes it used to happen more, would bring a friend or on an alpha course and they'd say, so-and-so, they want to become a Christian. Would you help them? And they're a bit puzzled because I go, no. The church member would go, oh, that was helpful. I go, no, you help them. You help them. You get the privilege of having a front row seat at seeing someone's life changed. Because once you see it and you believe that it's possible, you'll want to see it again. Let's pray together.